You're listening to Rock's Heart Radio. This month, Roxana Moran talks with Lindsay Cilia and Maya Serhal about the job search, work-life balance, and more as they kick off their cardiology careers. Roxana Moran from Mount Sinai Hospital. Um, really, really excited about this month's uh, chat with uh, some of my wonderful colleagues and uh, the emerging leaders, the future of cardiology, especially interventional cardiology on Rock's Heart Radio uh, this month. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Lindsay Cilia and Dr. Maya Sarhal, both um, kind of senior uh, graduating or graduated and graduating uh, uh, fellows from the Mass General Brigham Hospitals. I had the pleasure of visiting MGH last month. It was one of the most wonderful, wonderful times where I had a great quorum with uh, some of the fantastic men and women, uh, interventional cardiologists and just cardiology fellows in general. And I realized how much, how amazing the next generation of leaders are going to be. The, the future is so bright for cardiology with so many fantastic people coming in. And it was just such a wonderful uh, discussion. And we were having a little bit of a discussion when we were doing case reviews with the interventional fellows over at MGH. And um, we talked a little bit about jobs and what does it feel like to get out there. And times have changed, you know, uh, 25 years ago when I looked for my uh, first job back in, I'm not going to say, but anyway, a while ago, it was not easy. It was really, really hard, especially for women. But, but also it was, um, it, you know, you just had to be trained in interventional cardiology. There was some uh, level they were looking for a little bit of peripheral vascular intervention as well, but not, not a requirement. It was still, you know, mostly bread and butter, coronary artery disease, uh, STEMI call, that kind of thing. And really nobody was saying, are you a chip operator? Are you, do you know how to do, how many CTOs have you done? And what's your peripheral vascular interventional tech, you know, technical capability and how many tavers have you done and blah, blah, blah. And it just seems like we're uh, changing. Everything is changing. It's just like coronary intervention isn't good enough. You got to do more and more. And that just means more training. It just means more burden. And I wondered what's really going on. I I have my own theory, but I wanted to um, have this discussion with and it's okay, if it's okay, Dr. Celia and Dr. Sarhal, I'm going to call you guys with your first names and please do the same for me. So I'm Roxana and we have Lindsay and, and Maya, two amazing women. It just so happens that um, there are a lot of women being trained at the at MGH. And so it just so happened that uh, they're on the show. It doesn't mean that I was just looking for women, but it's great because I'm going to ask you some tough questions about your interviews and things like that. So let's, uh, let's just start with that. So Lindsay, hi. I know hi. that you're um, you're you're uh, starting your first job as an as a full fledged attending. Uh, how many years have you trained? Tell us about yourself. Uh, so right now I'm finishing my chip CTO year at Mass General in the Brigham. Um, so I've trained for many years. I think my dad calculated it out. It was like about 16 years under my belt. <laughs> um, so I did four years of med school. Uh, four years of college, four years of med school, then three years of internal medicine residency, three, to three years of general cardiology fellowship, a year of interventional fellowship that I finished at Mass General last June, and then I stayed on for additional training. 
um, at Mass General and the Brigham for their combined CHIP CTO program. And then I start my new job in Virginia. I'll be heading to Virginia in the end of July to start in August, which is crazy to think about that, you know, I'll oh, actually be in Congratulations. What a Thank fantastic you. place that you're going to. And Thank how you. lucky are they to get someone uh, like you? I'm, I'm just so very impressed. Um, so Maya, do you want to tell us about yourself? Yes, um, I, I, I've lost track of how many years I'm training. Um, <laughs> I, I guess four years of medical school, three years of internal medicine. I took a very uh, unexpected route and ended up applying to vascular medicine um, before going back and doing cardiology. I did my training at the Cleveland Clinic and they happened to be looking for someone as I was finishing my fellowship. So stuck around for two years and was in attending in vascular medicine there. And then decided to go back and do cardiology training, which I did at BU and then my interventional training at MGH. I'm wrapping up my general interventional year and I couldn't do vascular medicine and not do endovascular. So another year of training to go for next year. So I'm a little uh, earlier uh, in the process than Lindsay is, and I'm about to start the job search and have started putting feelers out there. Well, I'm really glad that... um... I'm featuring you, Maya, because, uh, you know, whoever's listening to this podcast is going to call you and we'll put your contact information and so that they can reach out. And maybe you'll have so many job offers, uh, you won't know what to do with them and which one to choose. That'll be great because who wouldn't want somebody as trained as yourself? I think it's so important um, to, to have that kind of incredible, I think you're going to be able to see both sides as a vascular medicine specialist, but also as an endovascular specialist, as well as having the coronary. I mean, it's going to be amazing. So congratulations to you, but boy, is that a lot of training and, and, and that's got to be tough, but let's talk about the job search. So Celia, what was it like? Tell me a little bit about if I, what I said, or, or is it easy to get a to get a job if you're not super trained even after interventional cardiology in some subspecialty? You know, that's it's it's challenging. So, you know, first of all, starting out the job search, there's the key thing that I do want to tell people is not every job is listed. So, you know, it's it's crazy to go through all this training and then and then you look on these job websites and unfortunately not all of them are always posted what's available. So utilizing your mentors and having them reach out to even just inquire if there's a job opportunity or or you know what their interest is in hiring and in, in, in the near future um, is important. But you know, as I was going through general cardiology fellowship and knew knowing that I wanted to go into interventional. I would ask my peers who were, who were interviewing, like, what's the job search like, you know, what's going on. And they would tell me that it's so hard to now get a job without, with just strictly your one year of coronary training. And that scared me. And I was like, well, you know, this is what I've always dreamed of doing. I want to be an interventionalist. So like, what does that even mean for me? So, you know, then programs started coming up where you signed on for two years and you did structural um, and structural interests me. You know, I love everything involving interventional cardiology, but you know, then my time came to consider structural intervention, structural cardiology. And, and now then I heard people saying it's so hard to find a job as a structuralist because the job market's so saturated. And I knew that I loved coronaries. And so it was really fantastic that these programs across the country started opening up for CHIP CTO because it just made me a better specialist. It did involve another year of training, but it was a very worthwhile year. But it, it is scary going out, realizing that after training for so many years as an inter- to become an interventionalist, that 
the jobs, you know, now you need something to make you more unique. What do you have to offer to make yourself more unique other than <laughs> training for 16 years um, and oh becoming an interventionalist? So that's crazy. I, I, I think it's just crazy, isn't it? And, and it just, it's going to take that long in order to start to make an actual living that is compatible with normal life. And when you think about that, and then we are questioning, why is it that we're not getting more talented, better, you know, women and, and men actually to come to interventional cardiology. And we're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of people from foreign, foreign nations coming in because we just don't have that. But yet the job um, area is saturated. It's just unbelievable. Um, Maya, what does that make you feel like right now? Listening to this from Celia, uh, from Lindsay. I, I think I had a little bit of um, a, a head start in terms of realizing how challenging the job market was when I was looking for, when I was working in vascular medicine. I think um, I, I think it's just so hard because I think every institution wants people who are subspecialized, who can almost make themselves indispensable, especially when you're looking for academic jobs where you've got this subspecialty interest that makes you unique and gets you a great referral basis. Um, so it's, it's, it's really scary to think that after, I don't know, 16, 15, 20 years of training that most of us have at this point done, um, that we won't get the job of our dreams. Cause I think that's ideally what we want is a job that supports us and we can grow, but I, I think I've tried to be thoughtful about uh, the training that I've done to make me as uh, uh, easy to sell as possible when the job search comes along. But I, I do think it's very, very challenging to do in the midst of your training and thinking that far ahead, because you'd assume that jobs would be lined up for you at the end of all of it. Aren't you guys tired already? I think, yeah. Go ahead, Maya. Go ahead. I think my family is. <laughs> family's tired, aren't you? Yeah. I am. I, I, I love what I do, though. I, I think um, I think there's a lot of training. I think I've, I've read a couple interesting articles about how, you know, it, especially in the U.S., you know, there's more and more training that people can do. And is it really necessary? A lot of this stuff was done on the job previously. I think it's a very interesting debate. I think training, I wish, was a little shorter because it would be nice to start or quote unquote, real lives, you know, as attendings a little bit shorter, a little bit earlier, but it, it is, it is exhausting. And I think the part that I kind of wish we had more of, I think just in general in training, not necessarily at my institution, I think because we continue to be in training for so long or sense of ownership, it's just not the same as when you're attending and independently practicing, it can never be the same. Um, so I wish training was shorter, but I, I do think we're all smarter for the years we've done. No, there's no question. I mean, I, I think both of you are super, super trained, uh, stars, uh, as far as I'm concerned, and you're going to do very, very well. The question is how far behind you are. And, and then of course, I, I think about why they need these super specialists now and why is the job market saturated for, um, you know, coronary intervention, for example, like simple coronary intervention or non-complex disease and where the bread and butter actually is non-complex disease. Um, not, it's not everyone is complex, you know, and, and, and I wonder, 
Um, you know, is it because that the, the, the people who are there um, are feeling less comfortable doing the very, very high risk PCI? And they wanna relegate that to a different, newer uh, people just coming out of training, but they're never gonna give up the helm of the of their simple coronary uh, work. And that is why we're uh, now pushing again, uh, pushing the, uh, the pressure back onto our trainees and the younger generation. And, and I just think that's a very dangerous place to be. Uh, I just really get worried that your mental health, your, your um, ability to just continue to be in this training. So we've gotta be thinking about that going forward. But let's uh, switch a little bit and talk about what that process was like. Both of you are women. I can tell you that uh, my experience was not great in my, uh, as I was doing the job search in terms of feeling somewhat intimidated as very, very, there were hardly any women and, it, and nobody wanted to hire a woman. Um, and they were very worried about my biological clock and whether or not I was going to be uh, having children during, uh, you know, as soon as I came out, I had terrible questions be asked to me during my, um, during my interviews, uh, et cetera. Um, did you feel any of that or did you feel very comfortable going through the, the interview process? Was there a time as you were uh, looking that you felt, oh, you know, that was inappropriate? You know, I think I was nervous about that um, because, you know, I think that you're definitely aware that that could be a potential. But, you know, I think compared to what you went through, I actually think that it's gotten much better. I mean, I think people are actually looking for female interventionalists. I think that they are interested in, in, in hiring female interventionalists. So I actually think that it was advantageous to be in my position. Um, there really was no uncomfortable situation that I can remember that happened during my interviews in terms of where That's they, you know, they asked me if I was going to have children soon. I mean, in fact, people were places where I inter interviewed were telling me that if you're planning on having kids, we support, um, you know, tuition for, for, for children later on in the future. And, and they were saying that we are very family oriented. I think they were, you know, switching gears and, and, and showing me that they're very family oriented because I was open and honest that I, I want to have kids and I want to have a family and, and family is important to me. Okay. So they, they gravitated towards that and they were very supportive. So I'm grateful that I, I didn't have that experience because um, that would have been really upsetting. Yeah, no, I'm glad to hear it. You know, um, even as, as recent as uh, four or five years ago, we were hearing that kind of stuff going on. But since the, the movements and all of the, all of the things that we're all doing, I think uh, we've improved a lot. Uh, our field hopefully will continue to thrive. So Lindsay, I'm, I'm going to come back to you again, because, uh, you know, so what advice do you have for Maya, and especially for your contract negotiations and restrictive covenant and all these other things that no one knows about, no one talks about. And uh, all of a sudden you're given this contract. It's usually two, three years. Uh, hopefully it's three years at the very least. Uh, but then there's restrictive covenant, which then kind of marries you to that place. And, you, and, then, and then you never know that after the honeymoon period of three years, how they're going to be treating you, et cetera, and what's going to happen. Uh, what, what advice do you have for Maya? What did you do? Uh, is there, did you feel like you were supported in that way? And are you feeling comfortable and confident that going forward, there's enough resources for people looking for jobs? And if you have any advice for anyone? 
So, you know, <clears throat> always in terms of approaching the process, I think that I was hesitant because I, I never really hired a lawyer for anything before. <laughs> and everyone's like, you know, get a lawyer, get a lawyer. And I was like, for what though? Like what, you know, I'm going to go to a job interview and and I'm sure I'll, if I like it, like I've always liked it, I'll go with my gut feeling and sign sign the contract. But um, getting a lawyer was very helpful because there's like dotted lines that I, I you know, I, I would skim over and, and not realize is important or may become important later in the future that she she made these points. And um, so I think getting a lawyer for assistance is, is, is important and also never being afraid to just ask for for more if it's what you want, not money wise, but, you know, in terms of scheduling and also money, or, wise, and also money wise. But, you know, of course, <laughs> yeah. but like, you know, the 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 situation that I got built for me because it was in line with what I, my vision and what I wanted was completely different than what was initially offered. But, you know, you know, for That's advising cool. you, Maya, you are, you're a great catch and a great hire. So not being afraid to just be open and honest about what you want, because, you know, they, people may accommodate you and they may make changes and sometimes they'll tell you no, but that's also okay. But sometimes they'll move mountains to, to make what you want work. And it's really great that that's possible. And, and if I never asked, I would never get what I wanted. And if I never questioned, I would never get what I wanted. So, so not being afraid to do that is important and having, you know, people on your side to help you and, and go through things with you that's, that has, has been through it before is important. That's great advice. Maya, what do you, what do you think? Are you, uh, what's your plan? I'm going to take Lindsay's advice to heart. Um, when I start, I think it's interesting because we are kind of delayed compared to other folks our age when it comes to learning how to negotiate contracts, et cetera, whether it be money or resources or anything because none of us have. Um, we've done training for 10 years and we've just fallen into programs where we match in this kind of old um, dated system that we've got. Uh, but I, I think Lindsay's advice to ask in worst case scenario, they say no is, is good advice. I do kind of circling back to being a female, I think because of, I think a lot of uh, female advocacy, I, I do think I've been told on multiple occasions being a female who's trained in vascular intervention will be an asset to you rather than a deterrent, which is very, very refreshing to hear because I, I, I think I've had occasional experiences at points in my time, points in um, my training where I've just, you know, or interviews really um, places I've chosen not to go to um, where sometimes questions have been asked uh, in ways that make you uncomfortable. And uh, I'm glad to see that that's changing. I, th I think it's for the better overall. Oh, no, it's wonderful. It's refreshing to hear all of this. I really, really want to thank you both for making time. I know you're all in the middle of doing your big, busy days. Um, you know, I see you, Lindsay, in your, uh, in your scrubs looking to go. And, and I know that uh, Maya is also extremely busy. But thank you for, for the short period of time. I know that our listeners are going to love hearing this. And and I really will bring back, well, I'll bring you guys back for sure. And uh, we're going to work hard on Rock's Heart Radio to continue to drive this home about not just about women, but about this next generation of leaders who are coming in. Making room for all of you will be a great thing for our patients. Uh, you guys are going to do great. And that trajectory, your trajectory then should be accelerated based on all of the training that you've had. 
it shouldn't be, oh, you know, go back to the back of the room and start all over again uh, when you're just coming out of such an incredible training. Uh, so I'm hoping that we could, we could do that and continue to work in that way. And we'll have more programs for our listeners about this. So come back, tune in. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you both, Dr. Sarhal, Dr. Celia, for spending your few minutes with us on this very important and informative future for both of you. You guys are bright stars for interventional cardiology. We're so happy that you are uh, doing this. And thank you all for listening. This is Roxana Moran on Rox Heart Radio signing off. Thank you. Thank you.